This is Oil & Water Relay. I'm Joe LaVisca. And I'm Rachel Dunkeld. Oil & Water Relay is a conversational space where we sift through recent news about Keystone XL and related oil and gas projects from around the U.S. and the world. This is a chance for us to share our emerging insights and pass the conversation on to you, our listeners. Tune in to our feature-length podcast, Oil & Water, for in-depth stories on Keystone XL, including interviews and stories with people impacted by the pipeline. Each episode, Joe and I will talk through a handful of recent news stories, summarizing the basic points of the story and offering our interpretations. We're recording this on Tuesday, December 9th, 2020. And to find each Oil & Water Relay episode, go to our website at oilandwaterpod.com and click on the episode's link or follow the links in our social media posts. We'll post written stories from our reporting on our blog, so check back often. Okay, should we get started? Let's get started. So first, we're going to talk about a couple of articles that I found following Biden's victory in the presidential election. We'll learn how that result will affect the Keystone XL and other pipeline projects, too. When Trump came into office, one of his first actions in January 2017 was to sign an executive order allowing the continued construction of the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipeline. While his support of the KXL was a good thing for Alberta, The last four years, in general, have been challenging for the U.S.-Canada relationship, as seen in our first article published by Al Jazeera titled, The Pipeline That Could Complicate the Reset of U.S.-Canada Relations. In this article, we get an overview of the expectations and hopes following the Biden victory in November. On the election trail, Biden was committedly opposed to the Keystone XL citing a lack of necessity alongside the pollutant impacts of bitumen crude oil, while Canada firmly backs the pipeline as, quote, top of the agenda, unquote. The Alberta government is an equity partner in the project and has invested over $1.1 billion U.S. dollars into the project, a decision backed by Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. In the article, they speak to Canada's commitment to energy, environment, and climate change, citing Canada's track record for being the most reliable energy supplier to the U.S. I must admit, when I read about Canada's commitment to the environment and climate change while simultaneously seeing their perseverance in mining bitumen crude oil, I felt confused. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty confused too, Rachel. Um, I think the, the messaging coming from Canada and Alberta is pretty mixed and... Um, And I don't, deep down, I don't believe that supporting KXL is good climate policy. So, yeah, I think that there's definitely some empty rhetoric in claiming to have progressive climate policy while while still pushing this project forward. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Joe. Um, Clearly, Canada's government hopes for a positive result on the KXL. But the question is, will they get it? Um, In the video that I brought to the table today uh, titled, Would Biden Cancel Keystone XL? A video report produced by CBC Canada, host Vashi Capellos interviews Alberta's senior representative to the U.S., James Rajot, asking just that question. In this interview, Vashi questions Rajot regarding his projections of Canada-U.S. relations following the Biden victory. Rajot introduces two main areas that Canada will want to focus on. 
First, he discusses trade relations, expressing concern to Biden's, quote, by American, unquote, mentality. He indicates an intention to shift that language to by North American, as trade with America is a significant part of Canada's economy. He then moves into the topic of the Keystone XL, and it sounds as though the whole of Canada will be waiting with bated breath to see Biden's response. He echoes the Al Jazeera article, speaking to Alberta's status as an equity partner, while strengthening the argument that the Keystone XL is supplying an essential product to America. When we were first talking about these articles, Joe, you mentioned the dissonance in this idea from Rajot. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, about the essential product. I just think there's a logical fallacy in his argument uh, that it's better to get heavy crude from an environmentally responsible government like Canada when the alternative is Venezuela, whose supply is, in his quote, dwindling anyway. I mean, the oil industry is designed to extract oil from the ground, regardless of where it comes mm-hmm. from. To extract all of it. Yeah, and, and and really, we have not been presented with any limits in that regard. So KXL really is designed to quicken the pace of that extraction and removal, not replace the source. There, there hasn't been much policy surrounding, is there a limit to what can be taken from a specific source? No, but I think that we might be headed in that direction. I mean, that would be a good turn for our politicians to make in terms of limiting uh, extractive projects and transitioning toward um, more renewable energy sources. Yeah. So with Trump as president, it was much easier to predict America's stance on fossil fuel. And I think we could have probably predicted some of the future policies. But now that we're moving in a new direction as a country, it's clear that there's some big questions right now regarding how Joe Biden will respond to the fossil fuel industry. One thing, though, is for certain. Although Alberta's government and many U.S. politicians are in favor of the Keystone XL, there are people on the ground in both countries that are vocally opposed. Al Jazeera reports that 350.org, a well-known climate advocacy group, sent a letter with approximately 10,000 signatures urging Biden to stand by his promise, stating, quote, Our government and the fossil fuel lobbyists that they're working with are not speaking on behalf of Canada, unquote. Reading this statement after listening to the public hearing hosted by the Montana Department of Environmental Quality, I couldn't help but draw a similarity between the people on the ground in the States and those in Canada, both advocating for their local places. It's interesting, I think, that pipelines have been central to the platforms of recent elections, including that of Trump and even previously with Obama as well. Yeah, it makes me wonder if we are seeing a similar pattern to supportive pipelines as we are to supportive presidential candidates. And what I mean by that is in seven of the last eight presidential elections, a Democrat has won the popular vote. I think similarly, I get the sense that the will of the people in an overwhelming majority tends toward curtailing these fossil fuel projects and turning toward renewables. But policy, government, and corporate power are all oriented toward maintaining this system of extraction. Uh, But that is increasingly the minority uh, view coming from the public. So there are a lot of question marks about how things are going to change once Joe Biden is inaugurated as president.
and Biden did commit on the campaign trail to kill Keystone XL. But there were a few other high-profile pipelines and extraction projects in the news right now, and it's instructive to look at his stance on those. So in Minnesota, Enbridge has the Lime 3 replacement pipeline, and that's poised to either live or die in the coming months. We looked at an article from minpost.com called What are Joe Biden's views on two of the most controversial environmental projects in Minnesota? And that article hit the campaign trail back in May to hear different Democratic candidates' views on Line 3, as well as a proposed copper-nickel mine in the Boundary Waters drainage system. What they found was the more progressive candidates, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, coming out early in direct opposition to these major industrial projects. But Joe Biden held his tongue. This won Biden the support of the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party, or DFL, which helped propel him to victory in Minnesota and later the general election. The DFL is supportive of these projects, which would employ many working-class Minnesotans, so Biden may find himself in an awkward position come January, facing pressures from all corners to take a stand on these projects. One question is whether the federal government should be taking a stance on projects that take place off federal lands. But you know, Rachel, as I say to my students, the first rule of ecology is that everything is connected. You know, what one state or local governing body decides to do, especially where water is concerned, will inevitably affect communities and ecosystems beyond their jurisdictional boundary. So projects like Enbridge's Line 3 replacement that contribute to global climate change are a perfect example. Yeah, so when presidents are creating their running platforms, it's such a difficult balance between speaking to the majority and speaking to those individual communities. I'm wondering what would have happened in November if back in May when this article was posted, Biden had come out in support of the Line 3. How would the support of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party have impacted his subsequent election. And that's also where you get into those questions about are politicians following their word? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, I'm not saying it's okay, but I can imagine that's a very difficult position for a politician to walk a fine line. Yeah, I tend to appreciate when politicians get stuck in these situations Because these issues are not all or nothing, right? These are not zero-sum games with winners and losers. And that's so much what our politics have become. But in the end, these are complex issues that really matter and that really don't have clear solutions. So, you know, it's expectable that Joe Biden might find himself backed into a corner And that just means that he's working through the issue from many angles. Totally. And it makes me think it's not a zero-sum game. It's not black and white. There are so many alternatives just because, um, and we're going to get into this later with your Alaska article, but um, when, when a state's economy is so heavily dependent on one industry, is the only option to continue moving in the direction of that industry or can can those things change and do they need to change? Yeah. And it's important to remember that when we say industry, we mean a large body of people who have invested their livelihoods 
in making these projects happen. And so, again, it's just, it's a complicated thing. And so, yeah, there's a very different story playing out on the north slope of Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR. And I hope our listeners already know something about this, but oil drilling on the coastal plain of ANWR has been proposed since 1977. So it's been going back and forth a long time. And this is federal land, and the go-ahead is very much the purview of the president. So, Rachel, remember back at the end of 2018 when the federal government shut down for 35 days? Yeah. Yeah, that was the longest shutdown in history. And the budget bill that brought the government back online contained a rider introduced by Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska to allow for oil drilling in Anwar. But even with the supportive majority in the White House and the Senate, it's taken until the 11th hour for the Trump administration to facilitate this process. But now, a lease sale for oil companies to bid on drilling sites has been announced for January 6th of 2021, just 14 days before Biden takes office. And we read, a, we read an article called, With Oil Drilling in Anwar Advancing and a Possible End to Pebble Mine, What Could Change for Alaska Under Biden? And this was published by Anchorage Daily News. And this stuff just blows my mind, Rachel. At issue here is a fragile Arctic habitat for polar bears and caribou, among other species, who have few undeveloped places left to access the coastal plain on the north slope of Alaska. The heavy industry of Prudhoe Bay lies just to the west of Anwar, with a massive mountain range to the south and east and the Arctic Ocean to the north. It's a massive landscape, but it's the last untouched refuge that these important animals can access. And introducing oil drilling to the area will be disruptive and expensive. It's estimated that it will cost about $100 per barrel to extract oil from the coastal plain. So companies won't turn a profit until barrel prices climb back up to more than that, which is likely to be many years away. And I'm all for playing the long game in life, but most of these projects don't pencil out with that kind of weight. And if our listeners want to learn more about the contentions over oil in Enwar, definitely hop over to the Threshold podcast. Their award-winning third season is all about this issue and goes deeper than any reporting to date. It's well worth a listen. Yeah, agreed. This is a great way to learn about this issue. And we wanted to finish with some words from a joint press release put out by the Alaska chapter of the Audubon Society. Uh, Numerous representatives from organizations joined their voices, and one of them was Jody Potts, the regional director for Native Movement. Jody wrote, quote, The oil and gas lease sales on the Arctic Refuge demonstrate the Trump administration's complete disregard for the human rights of the Gwich'in and Inupiat people and our ways of life that depend on the health of the refuge's coastal plain. In the Arctic, our peoples are being heavily impacted by a climate crisis due to fossil fuel extraction, which we cannot afford to continue. The adverse impacts of oil development in these sacred and critical caribou calving grounds will be heavily felt by Gwich'in and Inupiat villages. As a Gwich'in person, I know my family's food security, culture, spirituality, and ways of life are at stake. End quote. Wise words from Jody Potts. Thanks, Joe, for bringing that to our attention. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. 
So check out the show notes for all the links to the articles we talked about this episode. Remember, check back for our feature-length podcast, Oil & Water, for in-depth stories on Keystone XL, including interviews and stories with people impacted by the pipeline. We also want you to be involved, so we'll post each episode of Oil & Water Relay on our blog and social media. We encourage you to write in your thoughts and comments. In particular, we want to hear what you think. How is your relationship with the fossil fuel industry changing as you learn more? Oil & Water is an independent project of the Systems Zoo, an educational collaborative making high-quality media for critical thinkers. Oil & Water Relay is created and produced by me, Joe LaVisca, and Rachel Donkeld. That's me. Music by Alexi Desmarais. Editing this episode by Joe. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Oil and Water Pod and our website at www.oilandwaterpod.com. Support, as always, comes from our listeners like you. Like you.